welcome to Ayahuasca Anonymous, stories of personal transformation through the use of ayahuasca and other plant medicines. Stephen Herod Buner is the guest today. If uh, you already know who Stephen is, he needs no introduction. If you don't, get ready to have your mind blown. Stephen is uh, a very respected, if not one of the most preeminent herbalists. Um, he basically book, wrote the book on treating Lyme disease through herbalism. He's written 22 other books. He knows a lot about a lot. Uh, he's a little bit of a legend in some circles, so it's such an honor to talk to him. Um, I became aware of Stephen through his Lyme disease work, I had Lyme disease. It's what brought me to ayahuasca. And it's funny to look back. I mean, like four years ago when I first got Lyme disease and I was becoming desperate because conventional treatments weren't working, I came upon Stephen's book and I dismissed it. I was like, I don't trust this guy. He dresses funny. He calls himself an earth poet. Isn't herbalism dangerous? Maybe he's just trying to make a buck. I don't know what my defense mechanisms were, but they were pretty strong. And it was only after I did ayahuasca that I was willing to give it a chance. And then it worked. Can you believe that? So what was I supposed to do with that information? Everything kind of crumbled from there. And then I became a plant person. And that's continuing to unfold. But the reason I bring that up... Uh, it's kind of a benchmark of how much I've changed in the last few years, but it's also an important reminder as we uh, question our beliefs of, you know, that was a few years ago. What am I believing now that's false or naive or immature? What are the vast constellations of my psyche that are unexplored and wrong? But it's always going to be like that. As we get older, in hindsight, we realize things about ourselves and we question beliefs. And that never ends. But I have since that time read some of Stephen's other books, in particular Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm, which has so many uh, mind-blowing, subversive ideas, at least to someone who isn't that informed about ecology and biology. And there's ideas in there that are extremely challenging to mainstream science, which I'm now much more receptive to having uh, ayahuasca experiences. But Stephen has written extensively about plant intelligence, bacterial intelligence, and the idea of the Earth as a whole being a sentient, intelligent organism. And he's not the only one. There's a whole wing of science, uh, a theory called Gaia theory, which has never really achieved any kind of mainstream uh, acceptance. But maybe that's not true. I'm out of my element here, but parts of it have become mainstream but the real uh, subversive theory that the Earth is alive and intelligent is kind of rationalized away. Um, and we talk about all this, so I don't need to talk that much more about it, but 
That's why I wanted to talk to Stephen and talk we did. It was a great discussion, a wide-ranging discussion. Um, I hope that you enjoy it. I certainly did. If you are curious to hear more about these topics, definitely check out Stephen's books. Uh, he talks about these subjects in more depth. And he also has a litany of interesting, independent, and radical scientists and poets and other uh, figures who I wasn't that familiar with that he quotes from liberally and uh, made me want to read them. So James Lovelock, Barbara McClintock, Lynn Margulis. Do you know these names? I didn't. But they came up with some of the most important developments in science uh, in the last century. And one, they were shamed and ridiculed throughout their careers until eventually through persistence, like, no, check this out. I'm right. The history of science is so fascinating. There's the, the old paradigms never go without a fight. James Lovelock, you should definitely look him up if you are unfamiliar. He's 102. He's still alive. He lives in Cornwall, England. Uh, he came up with Gaia theory when he was working for NASA, and he was studying Mars, looking for extraterrestrial life. And at some point, he's like, wait a minute, why am I looking on Mars? I don't even understand how the Earth works. How could life even be here? Seems like an important question to ask. Oh, and the audio is a little funkier than usual because the setup was unusual. It was more, I recorded a phone call, basically. But it sounds fine. It sounds great. It sounds amazing. Enjoy. Well, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm a big fan of your work, and it's kind of an honor to talk to you, so I'm glad you're here. Thank you, Nathan, very much. Um, and you have some idea of my background and how I came to your work. Um, and I just thought it was, there was an interesting overlap in the way people in the ayahuasca community view uh, their experience or how they may have perceived their experience and the way that you have written about Gaia theory and plant intelligence and things like that. I guess to start off with, how do you define Gaia theory? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It was uh, developed by James Lovelock with some input from Lynn Margolis, who um, her focus was really on symbiogenesis and the microbial world. And really both of them found that the Earth, to like really reduce it down to relatively a simple frame of reference, they found that the Earth acts like a living organism and that it keeps its body temperature within a certain range. It responds to um, pressures on it by adapting to those pressures and altering its behavior and its form. And that, so that they really felt that the Earth had to be viewed holistically as a living organism, not as sort of a an insentient bundle of resources hurtling around the sun with us, the only intelligent species on the planet. And, of course, this whole thing devolved into a huge argument because what they're 
talking about, it basically contradicts very fundamentalist assumptions within both um, monotheistic perspectives and um, sort of a reductionist, rationalist, mechanicalistic science. And so it sort of turned into now there's three forms of Gaia, um, roughly. One is called Deep Gaia, in which the assumption is that the Earth is a living being. It may not use rationality or reductive approaches in the way human beings think of it, but it's basically conscious, aware. It just happens to move on timelines that are far larger. We're sort of like <laughs> tiny buzzing insects when it comes into time relationship. And then there's shallow Gaia that says that Gaia is basically a living organism, but the poor deer is just not very intelligent. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it can't think, it can't do stuff. And, yeah. you know, which helps us maintain sort of a we're better, you know, kind of thing. And then there's the third one, which is just called Earth System Science, which says, yeah, you know, you have to treat it as if it's a, a whole system that acts like it's alive, but it's not really. So you can see in that the sort of drive to keep us at the sort of apex of things and, um, you know, the Earth not. But basically what began to happen with this whole um, articulation of Gaia theory, and it's interesting that the word Gaia was suggested to James Lovelock by his neighbor, the novelist who wrote Lord of the Flies, who basically said, you know, that's basically what you're talking about, what the ancient Greeks, the ancient Athenians were referring to as as this intelligence that they knew as the Earth. So one of the problems, of course, in the drug war for a long time has been that people using, and, you know, I want to make a distinction here between natural drugs and, you know, synthetic drugs. Basically, most of the natural drugs have certain kind of functions in the ecosystem themselves. Invented drugs were invented by pharmaceutical companies and researchers for sort of a reductive medicine approach. And these natural um, drugs, like all, most of them tend to have very uh, strong effects on the neural network of our functioning beings on the brain, which most people think of it as the brain, um, and perceptual states. And people that take those kinds of drugs like ayahuasca or LSD, which is kind of semi-synthetic, though there's some uh, more interesting story about that, or psilocybin or um, some of the various cacti, all of them begin to talk about how they've experienced this, the livingness and intelligence and awareness of everything. And that's a very, very common experience that people have. So it's not surprising that people on who have used LSD or psilocybin or peyote or ayahuasca, it's not a surprise that they would then feel such an affinity for Gaia theory because it's talking about something fundamentally true about Earth and fundamentally true about our relationship with ourselves and this planet and really where we sort of fit 
into things. In a sense, you can say that the rationalist sort of monotheistic um, disassociation from the livingness and intelligence of nature and the world, um, that thing is overcome by um, this alteration in perception. And once again, we begin to perceive things more accurately to how they are. And um, that's sort of uh, my sermon for today. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. There's so many things I could dig into with that. Um, you mentioned the three sort of uh, classifications of Gaia theory. I'm guessing that the Earth system science one is the one that most people that is most commonly accepted. Is that correct? Yeah, that mostly I think because you have to understand that within the whole the whole university system around the world has been built up around the dissection of, of nature and the dissociation from nature itself by us standing back as sort of you know supposed impartial observers, which uh, is not we aren't, but um, this whole concept of dissociated mentation or objectivity, by putting it in the terms of Earth system science, those discipline boundaries and classification, um, the way of seeing the world can kind of still be kept. And they don't have to make this leap into what holism really means, which is it's a very different kind of science. It's a very different kind of perception, and it's a very different kind of approach to Earth and to ourselves and to gathering knowledge from the world. So what we're really having and have been having for centuries is a conflict between paradigms and the extractive paradigm that came out of um, that sort of rationalist, monotheistic dissociation from nature. And most people don't really realize that scientists and the whole realm of science is really one of the most powerful of the Protestant sects that has ever emerged. They have virtually the same belief structure. It's just a little bit, you know, instead of uh, uh, <laughs> instead of God at the top, there's sort of, you know, this uh, um, sort of universe, this mechanical universe at the top that they're dissecting to figure out how to make it work or to do whatever they want to do with it. So, yeah, the Earth System Science is the one that they're sort of seizing on and trying to like manipulate a bit their discipline boundaries so that they can work better within both frames, but it's just not going to work. I mean, the, the problem that we have now is that human dissection of the world, which has been driven by scientists, technologists, rationalists, and on and on and on, we see the ruins that that is made of the earth everywhere we go now. The whole climate problem is because of that. You can't, you know, there was this belief that we could dissect the earth. Well, we, they had the belief that they could dissect the earth, that they could create hydrocarbons in various forms like plastic or pharmaceuticals or gasoline or whatever and then flow those into this nonlinear self-organizing being that we know of as Earth or Gaia 
and that it would they would be ecologically benign, but of course they're not. They're destabilizing everything. And so we're really beginning to see the end result of that whole approach, which was flawed from the very beginning, as the Luddites said, the neo-romantics said, the indigenous tribal people said, and pretty much everybody that's taken ayahuasca or, or LSD <laughs> or psilocybin, that they're all saying there's something wrong with that. And as somebody, you know, I grew up loving science, and I know a lot about it, and I read, or I have read probably 40 or 50,000 journal articles the last 15 or 20 years, and I really know that world. But the one thing you be, and I even majored in mathematics for a long time, but the one thing you find, if you begin to go deeper in there, no matter where you look, you're not going to find love in that world. You're not going to find ethics in mathematics. You're not going to find compassion in physics. You're not going to find ecological responsiveness in botany. And if those things don't exist there, if you can't find the best of our human capacities in that world, there's something wrong with those places. And that in and of itself should have told us and did tell a lot of people a long time ago that the path we were on was going to lead no place good. So I look at the huge emergence of um, of that hunger for what's typically called hallucinogenic substances that began in the mid to late 50s and ran very heavily through the 60s and 70s and is now resurging again as a foundational drive within the human species to correct what's been happening. And, you know, there's many other approaches people are using basically saying we need to see what's right in front of us and reclaim, you know, our, 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 a different way of being on this planet if we expect to survive and endure. Yeah, I think that movement, well, part of it, most of it comes from an amount of suffering because as much as we convince ourselves that uh, the way our system is set up is good for us, I think most people instinctively know deep down that it isn't. And, uh, I agree, yeah. The, the suffering drives a need to reconnect. What are some yeah, of those other the... ways... Oh, go ahead. Well, go ahead, go ahead, sir. I was going to ask, what, what are some of those other ways of reclaiming the connection to nature and the holistic approach as people, it tends to have, at least I have felt that, uh, hallucinogens provide a gateway, but they're not gonna, you can't take them all the time. <laughs> and there has to be. <laughs> you know, the tech bros in Silicon Valley may disagree, but yes. That's yes, right. We I could, agree. we could keep microdosing really, and, uh, you know. permanently be productive, but. The thing, the thing is, you know, there's a lot of people pursuing Buddhism, various states of meditation, but there's, these are the kind of things that we tend to hear about. What we don't hear about very often is the organic emergence of people moving into those different frames. Now, you know, for many, many, many decades, I was involved in the herbal world. And, you know, I'd gone to, because I'd had very, very powerful visionary experiences on hallucinogens, which I tend to refer as 
neuronostics, and I want to return to that concept in a minute, but I'd had very, very powerful experiences when I was 17 that moved me into um, a very different frame of reference. Um, so I've spent over a half a century now working in this realm of developing, you might say, language for how to speak about these things that was more articulate and uh, specific, and while still sort of having embedded within it the literally the experience of being connected to the world in this kind of a way. So <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, those other ways of those other ways. Okay, so you know, and because of I was aware of that, so I'd go to like, you know, conferences where shamanism was talked about or various kinds of humanistic conferences or growth workshops. And because I came of age during the 60s, there was a lot of that stuff everywhere, and I went all over going to all different kinds of things, and there was always something missing. It wasn't until I, you know, began to work very deeply with plants and ecosystems and as a part of that herbalism and plant medicines, and I started to go to these sort of conferences that had come out of the 60s um, and had been going on for decades, um, that I suddenly found all of these people who were working with the same substance, the same kind of experience. They weren't very articulate about it. They didn't tend to take talk out loud about it, mostly because they'd been uh, <laughs> rationalists explained, you know, and denigrated for their attempts at communication about it for a long time. But the thing is, in those herbal conferences, which were focused mostly around community herbalism, very little scientific herbalism was involved, or what would be called phytorationality, um, the vast majority of people there, thousands and thousands of people at these conferences, their life had been saved by a plant. See, you have to understand that when your life is saved by a plant, everything changes. These people had gone to the medical system, and the medical system had, you know, said it's all in your head, or they denigrated it, or they couldn't help them, or and they'd been, you know, whatever. They'd sort of been gaslit, which is a common problem in the medical world. And then somebody said, well, have you uh, tried this? And they take this plant, and all of a sudden they're well. And they have this experience of being healed by the wildness of the world. As the poet Dale Pendell once said, he said, part of us knows we need the wild redeemer. And that dynamic, just as taking a natural hallucinogen or neuronostic does, something comes in from somewhere and it shifts perspective in a fundamental way. And the thing about the herbalists, of which there is, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them now everywhere throughout the Western world is that they, it shifted the entire relationship from one where the human is dominant to where the plant was dominant. They went to the plant and asked for help and they were given it. And it was, that's a very different kind of thing. And it was a, a shock to most of them that it worked. And then it worked again and again. So they were subverted or subsumed into what they had been told human beings had conquered. 
and they began to see and feel and experience in a different way, and they shifted their allegiance. That's also happened within um, organic farming communities, you know, permaculture communities, anybody that's sort of working with the wildness of the world. And now it's, it's happening everywhere now in the, uh, <laughs> in the wine communities of the world. There's all these new generations of people coming up that want, that have discovered all of these thousands and thousands of years of making wine and they're moving out of that whole scientific world rediscovering this root where they go to the plant, the grape itself, and begin to be taught by it. And now this isn't that strange of a concept, even though the scientific community tries to keep it very quiet. You know, Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize for her work with corn transposons, said, I went no place that the corn did not first tell me to go. To learn in this way, you must have a feeling for the organism. They're like my children. They're my friends. Each one is different. I go to them, and they teach me about their day and their life. This is where I've learned everything that I know. And, of course, you know, it really upset people, but then she wins the Nobel Prize, and they're like, hmm, golly. She was really smart about that, but, you know, when it came to this, the poor deer just couldn't reason. <laughs> you know, that's why she tended to throw him out of her laboratory. And she was ostracized for decades. She was not allowed to do any public speaking for decades because of what she was saying. And you see how that conflicts with the basic beliefs within the rationalist paradigm, within our soul, our whole reductive frame. And that's the same thing that ayahuasca does, that psilocybin does, that that kind of herbalism does. So it really, anybody that is, <laughs> you know, directly interacting with Earth itself in some fashion over a long period of time or having these sort of experiences, and that's connecting us to this foundational reality that changes everything. And that really shouldn't be a surprise that with the kind of damage in the Earth itself, that the Earth, you know, there's certain signals that the earth is giving off now because of this that because we are of earth we're expressed out of earth that these signals are impacting us in very deep portions of ourself and many 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 human beings are starting to respond to that just because they uh, <laughs> they do they have dreams they encounter plants whatever happens and they're pulled into this different world and then you end up with people like Greta Thunberg, who is not going to settle for bullshit anymore. Yeah, and at such a young age, too. Yeah, it's such, I mean, it's astonishing to me, you know, at being age 70 now, to look and see one of the uh, the people that I think is such a great light for us is, you know, well, what, she's 18 or 19 now, I don't remember, but when she started, she was, what, 14 or 15. And that's an amazing thing, and it causes me to remember a story that Vaclav Havel told when the Yugoslavia, I'm not, I mean, sorry, when Czechoslovakia um, came out from under communist rule at the end, and he was talking about 
what a number of his people in his age range had told him. And he said they all had, after the 68 um, Russian invasion to oppress the Velvet Revolution, what happened is all of those people said, well, we can't, we can't go up against them all. We, we have to, like, think of the children. And he said, but what happened now, what they're saying is we had to speak up. The children were demanding it. They were shaming us for our cowardice. And I always like that, that they sort of, many, many, many children would not want to live in a world where they're trapped in that kind of frame of reference. And uh, and I think a lot of us are understanding that now. Well, first of all, I can completely understand what the way you framed it of kind of having a direct experience with plants themselves. I mean, that's how I came into it as well, is uh, having Lyme disease and trying my hardest to take as many antibiotics as possible. Uh, obviously, that didn't work. And I was very astonished that the plants actually worked. Yeah. It completely changed everything, because if that was true, then what else was untrue? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. what are the ways that I'm looking at the world that are just not helpful or true? Right. Um, so when people have a huge this, number of things about ourselves and the world around us that aren't true, and we incorporate those, we begin being taught those from the moment of birth. They're emphasized even more in the schooling that we get and as we grow through all of the media that we absorb every day. And then we go through life basing the structure of our lives and our futures and our hopes and our dreams on those things. And then suddenly we find out that some part of it is a lie. I mean, a real serious lie, not just a little lie. And then it's sort of like this wake-up call, and you said it perfectly then the question arises, how many other things that I believe are a lie? And that really starts what I think of as the journey to the self, when we start to wobble out on our own, thinking for ourselves, perhaps the first time in our lives. Yes, and it's a... It is, I like the word wobbly there. It's almost like a little bird wobbling out because there, no one can, uh, there are, there are guideposts. There are people who have gone that way before, but in a sense, everyone has to, uh, form their own opinions or question everything or not accept. The journey, any. the journey's always individual. Right. And that's the thing about it that once we start to reason for ourselves. That means, you know, because we're being asked a question. I mean, and in the beginning, like, well, especially with something with Lyme disease, when you're facing severe dysfunction, possibly death, or years of being disabled, it forces you to begin to question a lot of things. And especially once you take the kind of journey you're talking about. But in a sense, underneath that 
you're being asked a question, and it's the most important question that can be asked. Who am I? What am I? What is this scenario in which I'm embedded, which I've been told is all this stuff, but apparently isn't? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be Nathan? What does it mean to be Stephen? And that starts, as I said, what I call this whole journey to the self, and you begin to sort things out for yourself, to begin to reason and think for yourself, to form opinions that you don't inherit from someplace or, you know, absorb from someplace, but based on your own, quite often, years of deep thought. I mean, I remember James Hillman used to say, you know, he'd be, you know, he'd finish a talk and he's on his way leaving and somebody says, oh, oh, Dr. Hillman, Dr. Hillman, I just have a quick question. And he would turn and say, yes, I understand that your question is quick. The problem is the answers are long. So I've been thinking about them for many, many years. <laughs> so I'm not going to answer your quick question. <laughs> okay. When did you get involved, or what was the drive to uh, become involved with Lyme disease? Were you personally, did you know people? Because it seems like it's a very, um, my experience is whenever I meet someone who's involved in the treating or, investigation of it, there's usually some personal story involved. Well, for me, it was, um, I had, I didn't have Lyme disease. You know, I've yeah. got a chronic disease now that's, that I'm, I'm working with, which, you know, I would prefer to skip, like everybody with chronic <laughs> yeah. diseases. You know, it's kind of a lung, it's like a post-COVID, long COVID sort of thing that showed up. I got, I, we weren't really, didn't really understand that that's what it was because I got COVID really early on, um, last year in late February, going, going to this huge gathering in Arizona that had people from all over the West Coast attending. And, um, I just thought it was normal flu kind of a thing. Um, but it didn't turn out to be that. So, and long COVID is very similar to Lyme in a lot of ways. But in any yeah. event, um, I'd been deeply involved in herbal medicine for, oh, gee, 20 years approximately. And I had moved to Vermont for a while. And everybody there, you know, <laughs> was having, you know, you could actually watch Lyme disease every year move a little bit further north into the state. And, um, and I was teaching a lot in all over North America, um, very, very, you know, prolifically. And in all of the places I went, I was being asked two questions over and over and over again. The first one was, how do you go on with hope? And the second one was, do you know anything for Lyme disease? Right? And they were just kept asking and asking and asking. And I had been very focused on, in my early it was my early stages of work on with uh, uh, sophisticated use of herbal antibiotics for um, resistant diseases and organisms and my early work with viruses. And uh, a friend of mine who was a physician said, you know, I, I want to ask you to just go ahead and dive into this because if anybody can figure it out, it's you. And people really need to know something about this, about how to approach it. So 
you know, I threw myself into it. The Internet was, you know, much less developed at the time, and research um, was more difficult. Now, you know, there's millions of journal studies that I can access quite easily on the Internet, but back then it was much harder, and I came up with the first edition of Healing Lyme in 2000 and late 2003, I think, and it's actually a kind of embarrassing book when I look back on it. But nevertheless, it um, it had a it had a solid foundation in in the real world, and it actually did. Um, I mean, the very first thing it came out, I was speaking in England, and some woman showed up and said, "I didn't think I was going to be able to come." I've been in a wheelchair for the last three years with Lyme disease, and I took the protocol for a month, and this is the first time I've been able to walk and go anywhere for all all this time. And so that sort of um, showed me what could really happen um, outside the medical frame. And... uh, and so the book was written as the herbal antibiotics and herbal antivirals books have been written with a huge focus on it working for three audiences, for people with Lyme, for herbalists, and also physicians who tend to be rather skeptical of all of this. And that's why there's 50 to 100 pages of um, journal studies listed in the the rear of the book, but that's how I kind of got into it, and it fit my overall frame anyway of looking at, I mean, for me, herbal medicine is sort of a a um, sub-category of my work. It's, um, my, my focus really is on earth itself and this sort of state of mind and perceptual sensing and relationship with the living earth, but herbal medicine is sort of uh, fits within that world because the pharmaceutical industry is, is horribly damaging. Pharmaceuticals are one of the most potent pollutants that the earth has ever experienced, far worse than gasoline or climate change or anything like that. So plant medicines, which are you know, hundreds of millions of years old are ecologically benign. They're biodegradable, which pharmaceuticals are not, and uh, the earth is used to um, reincorporating them. So that really fit within that frame of reference. And um, one of the interesting things from you saying this is that because of that work and because so many hundreds of thousands of people with Lyme haven't been helped in the medical industry, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't get many emails from people talking about how they've been called to sort of a different way of life because of Lyme disease and their work with the plants. I know. it's it's uh, There were moments when I was in my ayahuasca retreats and things where there is a kind of magical thinking that can take over of thinking I got Lyme disease because the earth is calling me to something. I don't know if that's true or not, but it is a way the mind can interpret what has happened. Um, and in some ways it, it lessens your suffering because 
it makes you grateful for something that was very painful. People need to answer the question, why? It's a really important question. And the medical system, the way it is, has given up helping people with problems of the soul a long time ago. Because they didn't find the soul in the places they were looking, they gave up on the idea of soul. But the journey that we take is oriented around specific meanings. And it's not very easy to find meaning when looking forward. But it is much easier to find meaning when looking backward. Mm. And the thing is that, you know, I found in all my years of work as a psychotherapist that when we worked with a lot of borderline, what are diagnosed as borderline personalities and schizophrenics, that there isn't any answer to the question of why did mommy burn me with cigarettes that makes sense from a rationalist perspective. Most people would say, well, because there was something wrong with her brain, you know, <laughs> because yeah. she was just confused. That doesn't make sense to the four-year-old that still lives inside every one of us. But if you say, and as I found in working with these people, when they could find a more mythic or mythological reason for it, Everything sort of clicked into place for them, and then they really began to get well. Oh, it's because I needed to learn these certain things. Because it made me more able to understand this kind of suffering in others so that I could help them when I myself become a healer. Their reasons were individual. Like, for instance, in my own case, growing up in a very dysfunctional family with a very crazy mother who looked very normal, then, but she was able to get anybody to doubt reality quite cleverly. Like, <laughs> you were pretty soon, you couldn't doubt, you couldn't trust any thought or sensory perception you had about anything. And so there was this constant doubt, like, when she said, I love you, what she meant was, I hate you. But it takes a long time for a kid to figure that out. And so it trained me to pay particularly close attention to the meanings of things rather than their surface appearance. So it's as if my family were preparing me for the work that I was meant to do. didn't mean I would do it. didn't mean I would follow that particular thread. But it prepared the ground for it to happen if I should make that choice. And without, I mean, she ended up being one of my greatest teachers, as much as I dislike saying that sometimes, because she refined my perceptual sensitivity to, in a way that nothing else could have done. And that, therefore, answers the question of why, for me. And therefore, it becomes possible to have compassion for her and to begin to forgive her, you see. And it's the same way with Lyme disease. If you're, It moved me out of the victim position, if you get yes. what I'm saying. Yes, and the, no, exactly. one of the problems with, for many people with Lyme 
is they're caught in the victim position. Why did this happen to me? I want my old life back. Well, get a clue, it's not coming back for a lot of people. A new life is happening, but not the old life. And you have to find it. So you have to have the answer of why to the question why. And that changes everything. It's so fascinating. And in your case, talking about perception, that sort of became your life's work, and it became a strength rather than a weakness. Yes, it did. Yeah. I think, I feel that way as well, that everyone sort of has some sort of life purpose that emerges out of usually trauma or wounding. Well, we all, we all get wounds. I mean, one of the greatest lies in the American culture is that people deserve safety. Hmm. I mean, Goethe, the great German poet and writer, said, in life there are many dangerous things, safety among them. <laughs> I always love that line. The thing is that this belief that it's possible to have a life without any wounds, it's not. it's just not true. And that... Some of us succumb to our wounds, some of us do not. Some of us find strength and purpose in them. But to me, the majority of wounds, I mean, yeah, sometimes a banana is just a banana, and sometimes it isn't, sometimes a cold is just a cold, but quite often wounds have a mythological or a mythic um, element to them. And the greater the wound, the more likelihood it is that they will have that. And that's one of the real differences between the sort of monotheistic, rationalist framework that we're all sort of um, subsumed by. In that world, the concept of, of us being on a soul journey, a mythological or mythic journey, is pretty much absent. And that's part of the problem that we have that um, I mean, there's nothing more boring than to become to believe, and horrible to come to believe that we are just simply a bunch of chemical messages, you know, that our whole function in life is to reproduce and then die. You know, I mean, geez, where do these people come from? They're, uh, I don't like, I don't think I like their belief system. <laughs> Maybe they feel bad. <laughs> and probably, um, but the weird thing is, I don't even think they believe it. Otherwise, how could they be married and have children that they love and care for? Yeah. So I did want to say, return to that one other thing about um, neuronostics or hallucinogens. That yeah. One of the things that I wrote about in detail and went into in my book, Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm, is that um, I wanted to call that guy his mind, but the publisher wouldn't let me. So, But anyway, <laughs> is that you know the big question that nobody had answered is, all of these natural hallucinogenic substances, they've been around for millions and millions of years. What's their ecological function? And, you know, the closest that scientists would get, we're like, oh, you know, well, when insects or animals eat them, you know, they get, like, really disoriented, and then they fall over, and then they forget they're eating. So it's like a self-protective thing. Oh, yeah, right. But interestingly enough, there's this whole new area of 
science that's emerging, um, plant neurobiology, and <laughs> the guys in there like Anthony Trevavas, <laughs> Francis Beluska, they're, they're really hilarious. They're incredibly brilliant, and they have no tolerance for rational reductionism. So then they um, shame those guys <laughs> all the time. But uh, because uh, what they're beginning to focus on, rightly so, is saying, you know, all of this focus on the brain has missed everything. The important thing is not the brain, it's the neural network that the brain houses. The brain is just an organ like the liver. It's the neural network in the brain that matters. So study of brain size and convolutions and all of that stuff, it's, it's useless and has been useless. So when they look at the root system of a plant, they notice that the neural network, that those roots bear an incredible similarity to the neural network in the human brain. And in fact, they found that the root systems of plants are in fact a brain, as Darwin said a long time ago. Darwin has hardly ever read his work, actually. but And so they understood, they found that plant roots have memory, they... Um, Plants prepare for the future, they make future plans, they teach offspring, they do all kinds of things. They're not any different than mammals, as a number of researchers have said over the years, and they possess the ability to communicate, they have language, they have culture, on and on and on and on. We just can't see it because of, well, we're prejudiced for one thing and our timeline is too fast. So the interesting thing is what do those hallucinogens do in the ecosystem. Well, what they found was that, the, for instance, with psilocybin, which is a mycelium and it has a, it forms mycelial networks that run in just under the soil, the soil, and those threads tap into, you know, the neural network of plants that they do the same thing that has been noticed in human beings, that any organism that ingests those substances, including other plants, their neural net begins to adapt in ways that it couldn't before. It allows adaptation out of outside of habituated patterns. So it allows innovation, so that when ecosystems have a pressure on them um, because the way the earth works, if there's an environmental difficulty, this sort of signal or message goes through the ecosystems of the planet, sometimes locally, sometimes worldwide, and all of the organisms in either that ecosystem or the ecosystems of the planet begin adapting to try to sort of figure out how to respond to whatever the problem is. They're, it's not like a top-down thing, it's bottom-up. They're not like going, oh yes, we have we have gotten a message from our overlord. That <laughs> yeah. It's just more a sense like, oh, it kind of sort of pushes them in a certain direction. Um, and the thing is that these hallucinogenic plants allow adaptation outside of habituated frames. And so what you're seeing 
in a lot of the ayahuasca community when they talk about how these things help people with PTSD, for instance, or stuff. People take these and they can respond outside of the habituated pattern. And if you look at what happened in the 60s with so many people taking LSD, all of that music came out of it, a lot of literature, a lot of film, all this tremendous innovation happened, plus Apple computers and a whole lot of other things. The innovation was massive. And that's, that's exactly their function in the ecosystem. That's part of their function for human beings now is to help people adapt to the times that we're in so that we have a better chance of true adaptability to what's happening. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to keep the old world. That's already over with. Uh, we've passed tipping points that can't be remedied at this point, but we can adapt. Our civilization is not going to be able to adapt very well, but we can, as human beings have done uh, lots of times before. So what is an example of um, hallucinogens providing novelty or the ability to adapt to an ecosystem or plants? Like, I know it's, it's not top-down, but how might an ecosystem adapt to a pressure? Okay, I can give you some really great examples in plants themselves, and it also explains why rationalism or phytorationalism, uh, applying rationalism to plant medicines is never going to work okay. from a mechanicalistic perspective. So, you know, bacteria are really, you know, these microbial world, that's the foundational life form on this planet. Lynn Margolis, one of the things she found was that all so-called higher, more complex life forms were just innovations of microbial, the microbial world. Um, our cells are, I mean, our whole body, there's this thing where cells join together in a process called symbiogenesis to make um, more complex organisms that possess um, behavior and um, capacities that the two that joined together before individually don't have, for instance. So anyway, that's a whole long story. But anyway, so, uh, you know, plants after a while, like 700 million years ago, they start to form. And bacteria go, yum, yum, let's go, <laughs> let's go eat those guys. So they go to the plant. So like, let's say you have a plant now called golden seal, which a lot of people use for medicine. It's, uh, um, and so they go and start eating this plant. Well, the plant goes, well, I don't really like that. You know, screw you. Um, and the plant responds to what the bacteria are doing. The plant actually analyzes what's happening, and then creates a substance that we call berberine, which is a very powerful, broad-spectrum antibacterial. And that kills the bacteria, and the plant goes on happy as a clam. So then the bacteria, they go, oh, you know, that bastard, we really hate that guy. You know, and so then they, they figure out, the bacterial then actually analyze exactly what berberine did to them, and so then they create what's called an efflux pump, which then, as soon as the berberine goes in their body, this little pump pumps it out so they're unaffected. So then they go and start eating the plant again, and the plant goes, ah. 
uh, I hate those guys, you know, and then they go, okay, uh, ah, and they create an efflux pump inhibitor, which stops the efflux pump from working. And so they begin this, the reductionists look at it as a sort of a chemical warfare thing, which it isn't really, it's just, you know, relationship stuff. <laughs> but, so, under the um, pressure that the microbes create, the plant analyzes and adapts, all right? So, right. that happens all the time. That's why there can't be any standardization of plant medicines, because... Plants are constantly evolving and changing. They're the greatest chemists the earth has ever known. That's their job. And one of the things that they do is they maintain what most people call homeostasis, but incorrectly, it's really homeodynamics. There's no such thing as a static state in the earth. And so they maintain this sort of, it's like a, a balance point, like somebody riding a bicycle. The, ecosystem has this very sensitive state that it gets in where it can respond to just tiny touches that could destabilize it. And there's all these plants in that system are working together to respond to any kind of destabilization that might occur. So, but let's say you get some really strange thing that happens. And so now we get into and the stupidity of scientists and chemists. So they've recently just created synthetic organisms that can reproduce at the microbial level. I don't know why these guys could keep doing this. I mean, didn't they have oh, a, no, this is, a movie? This didn't is they Prey by Michael Crichton. <laughs> but anyway, or another way to look at it is because most of our pharmaceuticals are basically just um, ver um, variations on a theme. They're mostly created from fungi are plants, but they're, you know, tweaked. They're molecularly different so that the pharmaceutical companies can get a patent. So when we excrete these things out of our bodies, because our bodies can't use them for food, we excrete them out, they go into the landscape where they become active forever, and because all life forms are very similar to ours. They affect everything out there. They're destabilizing uh, ecological function everywhere. Every organism is being impacted by them. So they move into an ecosystem and begin to destabilize it. Well, the thing is, the plants have never encountered anything like this before. Nothing has. It's completely alien on this planet. And so their habituated patterns don't work. So what happens is there's the necessity to be for their neural network to move outside of those habituated patterns. That's when they begin to draw more strongly on hallucinogenic substances in order to enable yeah. them to adapt. And once they learn a successful adaptation, it gets passed on. The same way that happens, so bacteria tend to congregate in hospitals where sickest people are and where the most antibiotics are used. And what they do there is they basically use it as a testing laboratory. 
then they learn exactly how to alter themselves so that they won't be affected by the antibiotics, and then they begin to teach all other bacteria that they encounter how to do that. And bacteria literally rework their genome and pass that on to their offspring indefinitely. So people that study bacteria intensely and have for a long time are very clear now. They're highly intelligent. They have culture. They have language. They have tool use. They, you know, they are far smarter than we are. And all we're doing is creating laboratories in which they can figure out better ways to kill us because we've pissed them off, you know. So that's how adaptation happens. And it's not that different for us. You know, we have an experience of a hallucinogenic plant. We look around and go, you know, the life isn't really, the world isn't really what I thought it was, and I'm really different either. I'm really different too. And so we begin to look around ourselves, and we begin to innovate. You know, my innovation has gone along a certain line with herbal medicines, with creating a... Um, a whole paradigm of thought that allows um, sophisticated thinking about how the world really works that's embedded in this sort of um, sensory perceptual sensitivity and you know the ability to be to re-inhabit our inner being with the world you know so that when a rationalist engages in um, uh, mansplaining, so to speak, there's a sophisticated response. And that's part of the problem that the herbal community has had for a long time. When they're redefined, when they're gaslit, they don't know what to say except for, well, there's something that feels right about my what I'm doing and something that feels wrong about what you're doing, in which case the rationalist says, well, you know, you're just making this stuff up, you know, you're anthropomorphizing. But the response to that is, well, you're mechanomorphizing. You're projecting onto nature a mechanical foundational reality that isn't true, and you're trying to make everybody else believe it, too. What are you afraid of? <laughs> what will happen if we see the world as alive and aware and, and capable of communication and interaction? And that's part of my function, to do that. Other people do other things. And it's like the world kind of calls us to respond, but each of our response will be individual based on a lot of things that are you know, difficult to you know, sort of pin down. Yeah, well, I think you perform your function very well, by the way. You speak the language of science better than... Many scientists, and but that helps. I know that helps draw me into something that I might have dismissed or seen as threatening. Hey, this guy seems like he, like he knows what he's talking about. I'll give him a listen. Well, that's part of the thing. It's like we've been so. A lot of people forget colonization's been going on a long time. We were colonized long ago, so long ago that we don't even know that we were colonized. And these ways of thinking are deeply ingrained in us. We may feel that there's something wrong, but it's difficult to find 
um, articulations of the problem. So in writing those books on Lyme disease and everything, I had to write it in such a way that it made sense to the part of people that have been um, trained in this way of, of self-denigration and thinking. I mean, uh, doctors need to be able to read it so that they could help their patients. And if I alienated them, that wasn't going to do anybody any good. The people going to use the plants for healing, they've all been trained that it's superstitious quackery for a long time and that it will you know, probably kill you. These things are dangerous, you know. That's just hammered in over and over and over and over again. They don't work, but besides that, they'll kill you. And so people needed to be reassured that there was some foundational basis for this that would make sense within the paradigm in which they'd been trained, in which they'd been uh, um, subsumed. Because that part of us, the part that gets afraid, its job is to help us remain safe. So I had to answer its objections. And the same is true when I talk about hallucinogenic plants or when I talk about the earth itself are um, just even the times that we're in, I have to acknowledge that rationalist, mechanicalistic frame and give people a way to think about it and a way to speak about it so that that part of them feels counted and satisfied. I have to count their essential humanity as well, something the rationalist world tends to not do, and show that, yeah, there's... And also, that's one of the reasons I... You know, occasionally people say, why does he quote so many people? This is just terrible, you know? (laughs) But it's because when you get hundreds and hundreds of quotes throughout the body of my work, over 24 books now... And you see all of these people throughout history have been talking about the same thing, many of them scientists. Then you start to understand, oh, there is this whole other thread. It's just we're not taught about it. And, you know, because as Bill Mollison, the father of permaculture, said a long time ago, he said, we are members of a nation unbounded by time or geography. And it's important to remember that. We're not alone here. There are people like us all over the planet that are responding to the things that are happening just as we are. And what's more, many, many species are. So, you know, one of the jokes I like to make, (laughs) well, I prefer not to have to make it, but is that Republicans and conservatives are really, really scared of in, you know invasive people, but liberals and Democrats are really, really scared of invasive plants. You know, so all of them have to be re-eradicated with extreme prejudice. You know, but one of the things that happens in response to these cues that move through ecosystems is plants begin to move around the world with astonishing rapidity in ways that can't be explained by statistics or any kind of rationalist analysis. They show up in places that they actually theoretically shouldn't be able to. And then what they do when they're in those new systems, those new ecological locations, is they begin to change the the way that ecological system acts, and they begin to bring it back toward health. 
And after a while, you know, I've watched this for many, many decades, and after a while, they die back, they move somewhere else, but other plant species have moved in, and there's this rebalancing dynamic happen that happens where the soil is regenerated, the system becomes much stronger and more able to deal with shocks, and the world itself, I mean, you have to understand, the Earth has been around a long time. It's gone through times far, far worse than the Anthropocene and survived quite nicely. You know, we're not, the Earth is not in danger. We don't have to save the Earth. And even the human beings are not in danger. It's merely our civilization that's threatened because it's based on this rationalist paradigm that's inaccurate to the real world. It's accurate only to the virtual world that we've built on top of the real world. And we're being shown now what an error that has been. And there's nothing that we can do. I mean, when these hurricanes hit, (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter any kind of natural response or wildfires. We can't do anything. Yeah. Because there's so much more powerful forces than we are. So one of the things, necessities that we're being taught is humility. And that's one of the things I saw in the herbal world over and over and over again, the degree of humility in those people, because they knew how little they knew. They knew the plants knew far more than them, whereas you go to a medical convention and it's like hubris unleashed. You know, these guys think they know everything, when they actually know very, very little. And that's one of the things I love about the whole um, neurognostic community, hallucinogenic community, psychotropic world, whatever, in all of the ways that that's showing up now, because no matter how much of a rationalist pain in the ass some of these people become, I mean, Michael Pollan, give me a break, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But the thing is, they know that there's something beyond rationalism. They know that there's this other dynamic that's happening and they're struggling each in their own way to bring it more powerfully into the world in whatever way they're trying to do it. And um, it offers tremendous regeneration for all of us, for the world, for human society, for, well, for everything. Well, so here's something. We've been talking a lot about the rationalist point of view and how that is not the way the world actually works. Right. Um, and you quote quite liberally uh, from Einstein who said, we can't address, I'm paraphrasing, I guess, because I don't remember right. the exact quote. We can't address the problem. We can't solve the problems that face us using the same capacities that got us into it in the beginning. Yeah. So when we talk about Michael Pollan talking about neuronostics or psychedelics, but still using a rationalist framework, and we see that I fall into that trap a lot of time too. We're trying to describe something in a language that cannot describe it. Language can actually describe it and can capture it. It's just that rationalist language can't. And part of the problem is that um, 
And I mean, I've suffered this myself for many years. Many people in the herbal world do. Many people in America do. We want dad to like us. We want dad to say, good boy. You know, boy, you're really good. I, I heard what you said, and it's wonderful. And so we are in an argument. Mm. We're trying to convince a system with many, many powerful and famous and rich adherents to hear what we're saying. And so we're using their language. And so, in, a, in essence, you might say we're like women <laughs> that had entered the workforce in, in 1938. You know, to be an attorney, we have to be better than them at this kind of discussion. The problem is that will only take us so far. We have to get to a place where we can talk about the exact experience itself using words. And that's where Garcia Lorca, the poet, that's where the poets come in. People like Robert Bly, it's one of the reasons I talk about Bly so much, because that was the whole focus of his work. So that's why many of the things I have in there are things like that Norbert Meyer poem that says, Just now a rock took fright when it saw me. It escaped by playing dead. Because that captures an experience most people have had that there's more going on here than just simple reductionism. Most people don't really believe that the only thing you and your pet rock can share is you fall at the same rate. They experience something else. Or when you're looking at, you know, and Mary Oliver was pretty good at that too, you know, our, <laughs> our uh, you know, uh, Machado. But anyway, so where she says, is this the soul solid like iron, or is it tender and breakable like the wings of a moth in the beak of the owl? Who has it and who doesn't? I keep looking around me, the face of the moose is as sad as the face of Jesus. The swan opens her white wings slowly. In the fall, the black bear carries leaves into the darkness. One question leads to another. Does it have a shape? Like an iceberg, like the eye of a hummingbird. Does it have one lung like the snake and the scallop? Why should I have it and not the anteater who loves her children? Why should I have it and not the camel? Come to think of it, what about the maple trees? What about the blue iris? What about all the little stones sitting alone in the moonlight? What about roses and lemons and their shining leaves? What about the grass? Something happens when we hear a poem like that. Some invisibles have gotten into those words. And as you hear them, those invisibles move from me through the words into you. You can't... They can't find the soul where they were looking for the soul because the soul is invisible, but it can be felt. And that's the thing that's at the root of ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD or any of these is that we make 
powerful contact with something intangible, which kind of is almost a contradiction in terms. William Gass, the great writer, referred to this as the secret kinesis of things. That leads us in the direction William Stafford called it the touch of a golden thread. Only the thread knows where it's going. You follow the thread. You know, you get old, you get sick, people die, things change, but you never let go of the thread. And the way that you perceive the thread, it's a feeling thing. And that doesn't mean, see, there's emotion, there's feeling, and there's feelings. They're not the same thing. People, Americans are very terrible when it comes to their internal world. They can describe, you know, a metal with 10,000 words, you know. Any, yeah. They analyze the exterior world with all these huge terms and millions of them. But when you come to some internal thing, they're like two-year-olds. They can't, they can't do it. But a feeling, the feeling that I'm talking about is when, and everybody's had this experience, you walk into a restaurant that you've never been to, the two of you look at each other and you go, God, this place feels weird, let's leave. You can't point to what it is, maybe you can try, but there's some weird, something there, there's some part of you, you perceive the secret kinesis of things, the secret kinesis of that place. And another part of you said, you know, I don't think this is the place for us. You know, it's not going to be good for us to be here. Or when we see a little puppy walking across the floor that hasn't seen us yet, and we go, here boy, here boy, and the puppy looks up and sees us, and we see the puppy, and in that moment, there's this thing that happens, an exchange. There's this energy that flashes from the puppy into us, and from us into the puppy, and the puppy bounds over, and we just want to hold and touch each other. And almost everybody in the world has had that experience with something. Gardeners have it with their plants. I mean, it's a very common thing. But we have no word for it in our language. You know, the ancient Athenians had a word. They called it esthesis, the exchange of soul essence between us and some wild thing from the world. And they lived their entire life doing that. And they said at the moment of that touch, there's this breathing in and inspiration that inspiration came from the world itself, from that contact. But when we were trained out of doing that, because we were taught there was nothing out there, we began to experience daily what Lauren Isley called the long loneliness of the human species. Existential emptiness entered people's lives as a daily thing. Why do you think that so many people in America are on antidepressants? It's a huge, huge problem. But instead of looking at the source of the problem, they just give them antidepressants so they'll keep on working in this framework that doesn't work. So that's, you know, setting all of that foundational world like people are doing, um, you know, and arguing with dad, <laughs> and our scientific daddy, you know, so that they'll really like us and give us a big hug and tell us, oh, you're such a good boy, you know, which they're never going to do. Of course. Yeah. But we've set the whole foundation. It's really not for them. It's for ourselves, you know, as well as anybody, if we're writers or teachers, other people like us. But the next stage of that is to be able to capture in language this experience, like I just did a little bit here talking about it. You know, I went to this woman uh, years ago. I was 
you know, it had to be, gee, 40 years ago now. I was in a bad place. I was confused. I couldn't figure out what to do. She was one of my occasional teachers that I went to when I was in trouble. And she listened to me for a long time. And then she goes, oh, oh, I understand. You were being a bridge, weren't you? Well, you know, that's good. Bridges are important. But, you know, the only problem with being a bridge is that you yourself never get to cross over. And I thought, ah, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid to cross over? Well, I was afraid, you know, Daddy wouldn't like me. Because then I'll just be a kook. <laughs> I'll be on the other side. But, you know, the purpose of the you can't have a bridge without two shores. And so that's when I decided to leave the house that rationalism built for me and walk out into the world and find out what was there to be on the other shore and then talk about it so that people could have an experience of it. Wow. Well, what you're saying is you still are, at some point, are a bridge, but maybe at that point in your development, it was more like I'm going to be an explorer or a frontiersman. I need to map the other side so I can bring back some knowledge. But if I'm just sitting here trying to uh, carry everyone over the whole time, I'm never actually going to really explore the territory. That's absolutely perfectly put. I was trying to convince everybody that what I was doing and what I was talking about was legitimate. So I would be liked, so I wouldn't be alone, so I would get approval, but also because I was afraid. And I was afraid what would happen to me if I just did that. What if I'm ostracized? What if I can't find work? What if everybody thinks I'm crazy? What if, what if, what if? And that's why, you know, uh, people like Robert Bly, um, the the great poets, you know, like Baudelaire, who walk through forests of things that are also intelligent things that look, that watch us with affectionate looks, you know. And so, and Rilke, and the the poets are the the great poets, not the crappy poets, of which there's millions in America, but the poets who really know what they're doing when they work with these invisibles, they're the ones that can capture it, that can talk about it. You know, and so we begin to build a a way of speaking where we bring that thing into the room. You know, what Lorca called duende. And so we talk like when Bly would say, the writer pil- the writer piles up meaning behind the word like water behind a dam. You can kinda you get you can kinda get a sense of it then when it's put like that. And the thing is, a writer that's really good can pile up so much meaning behind the word that when you just touch that word or that sentence with your awareness, it's kind of like the way a water glass is filled up where it's like the water, the surface tension of the water holds it a little bit above the rim of the glass, but you touch it and then it runs out 
immediately onto your hand and your finger and down the side of the glass. There's that same sort of surface tension in the word that when we touch it with our awareness, that meaning breaks open and flows inside of us. And that's what it's incumbent upon us to do. So we find those little things like that. You know, to me, little phrases or little stories like, um, one of my favorite ones is the dolphin baby of, uh, you know, so this was back in the 70s where everybody was saying, oh, dolphins are intelligent, you know, and uh, Lily was working with it and stuff. And so this, uh, the way the story goes, this reporter was, who was very reductionist, very cynical, very rationalist, who didn't believe in much of anything anymore except keeping his job, and he was sent to report on this. So he goes in and he meets the scientists early in the morning and they show him around the, they open the door and show him around the lab and they take him over. And one whole wall of the lab was glass. And on the other side was this giant, giant pool of water filled with this, uh, in which lived a dolphin family. And one uh, amongst them was this little, little baby dolphin who was just a few weeks old. So, you know, as soon as the scientists come in and turn on the lights and they go over, all the dolphin family comes over and is talking, you know, meeting him and saying hi for the morning. The scientists are saying hi. And the reporter's going, oh, yeah, great, you know, this sucks. And, uh, and so they kind of show him around the room and give him some bad coffee. You know, scientists can't make coffee. Everybody knows that. And so then finally he, he uh you know, just sort of leans up against the glass watching the people with this, you know, cynical, you know, sarcasm just, you know, eking out of him, you know, until we can go home and write up his, his stupid little article. So anyway, he's there, he's there just sitting there and leaning against glass smoking a cigarette. And he, he starts to get that weird feeling that you get sometimes, like somebody's staring at you, you know. So he, he finally he turns around and looks and the little dolphin baby has got its nose right up against the glass and is just staring at him. In this way, the young sometimes have when they see this new thing that's new in their world, you know, and it's just staring. And the guy, like, he just, like, he's like, go away, you know, and he leans back and it kept staring at him. So finally, he turns back around and he draws in, you know, a big cloud of smoke and he blows it out at the glass, right, at the dolphin baby. And the dolphin baby guys get startled and he kind of, you know, flutters back and then he off he zooms. And the guy leans back around you know, smoking a cigarette. Well, it takes care of that problem. And a little while later, he starts feeling like he's being stared at again. So he turns around and looks, and there's the dolphin baby staring at him again. And he goes, what? And right then, the dolphin baby blows a cloud of smoke in the reporter's face. <sighs> Somebody that's in the room said he had never seen cynicism flee so quick from a human being. And it took everybody a minute to figure out what had happened. See, there's a feeling now in this room, even though we're by talking by phone, this sort of friction, this almost, you know, mild goosebumpy feeling hearing this story because something entered the room that wasn't there before. 
So it took a little while for everybody in the room to figure out what happened, and that was the baby was still nursing, so he'd gone to his mother, taken a mouthful of milk, and come back and spewed it in the guy's face. He was duplicating as closely as he could the behavior. And the reporter couldn't believe it because this was like a six-week-old baby of a species not considered to be as intelligent as human beings. And for the first time in his life, he was touched by living aware intelligence from the wildness of the world, and nothing was ever the same again. See, the experience that I'm talking about can't be found in any of the words that I've used. Nevertheless, it's present in the story itself, because there's meaning piled up behind the words like water behind a dam. And that's what we begin to work with, is the substance of meaning itself. That's why poets and storytellers are so good at this. That's the ones that are real. They're good. That's what they do. That's their job. In the old days, they were called poet tasters who drank this thing from the gods that enabled them to do that. And another way of putting it is we've consumed this substance. For many of us, the hallucinogenic plants allowed us to have contact with. It filled us up in a certain way, and we spend our life figuring out what to do with it. And those of us who are poet tasters, whose job is to work with language and communication, after a while we find a way to share this between each other. Because that is the whole point of it. That is the place life resides, in that experience. And once upon a time, everybody in the world knew it. They may not have been articulate about it, but... They shaped it when they worked with wood. They shaped because wood possesses these things. Clay possesses these things. It's an inherent part of it. Language possesses it. But if you have a feeling for it, if you, as Barbara McClintock said, you have a feeling for the organism, a feeling for the wood, a feeling for the clay, a feeling for color, for sound, for music, you can begin to imbue those things to not so much imbue them, but to shape this inherent substance which is foundational to the universe, to Earth itself. So that when other people encounter it, they get an experience of it. And one thing it does is it makes life worth living. It makes life rich. And it, it connects us to what is most essentially human in us, to the soul of ourselves and everything else. And if we then go out in the world and we compare locations like restaurants, houses, art, books, and we ask ourselves, how much is this experience in those things? If we, every scientific thing we approach, we go, how much is this experience in there? How much is it in this article that we're reading? 
that tells us about the impoverishment of our world. And our job now is to bring this back into the world for the human community, for the earth itself. Because once you have this in your life, everything changes. And it comes from the wildness of the world. And what we're really doing, what you're doing, and you're describing your own journey, you're undomesticating yourself. You're rewilding yourself. You're decolonizing yourself. And that just takes a while. The journey back to wild water is a long journey, one step at a time. It's the only way we can do it. But that's where we're going. It's the only way to sustainably inhabit ourselves are this planet. And that's the great thing about hallucinogenic plants. That's what they're calling us to do. Now, not everybody that takes hallucinogenic plants has great vision. Some people do, most people don't. Most people, they just feel better. And the the use of the word feel is intelligent and purposeful there. They feel better. Both in themselves and when they look out at the world, they're perceiving the secret kinesis of things. They feel better. And so they're beginning to be trained to be taught to re-inhabit their inner being with the world. That's what that is. When you are walking through, when you move into a meadow and experience it as a property of mind, when you immerse yourself in its secret kinesis, you're re-inhabiting your inner being with the world. And that's what we need now more than anything. It's a movement of wholeness rather than dissociation, rather than fragmentation or dissection. And in that, there is compassion, there is love, there is caring, there is empathy. All the human attributes that rationality and science and monotheism have removed from the world. And that in and of itself tells us that we're on the right path because it restores our humanness, the best of us. So that's what all this work is about for me, for you, for everybody that is doing whatever they're called to do. you making your podcasts. And it doesn't, you know, separating ourselves into little tribes and groups and shaming each other and yelling at each other and all of that stuff, removing, you know, engaging in dehumanizing vitriol is never going to get us there. Now, it's important to talk about the problems inherent in the rationalist, reductive, scientific, monotheistic paradigm because it's dangerous what it's done. It's, It's why we've ended up here in this place that we're in. And we have to counteract it. Affirmatively so and with great brilliance and sophistication. But as much as I dislike them and think they're all kind of intellectually challenged in the worst possible way, 
I don't see any need to dehumanize them. I just think they're idiots. Because if I look around, I see what they've done to the world, and they still can't see it. So that's the definition of an idiot <laughs> right there. Isn't so, it also the case that perhaps what's wrong with rationalism is that it's out of balance with this other half of what we're speaking about, that the mythopoetic sense of the world has been so subdued right. as to be almost non-existent. It's not necessarily that rationalism and... Uh, <laughs> I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And let yeah. me um, let me uh, massage it a little bit. Okay, okay. okay. Rationalism and thinking are not the same thing. Mm. The... The mind is an extremely elegant thing to think with, okay? But it's really feeling first, thinking after. So the, you know, we feel with the heart's sensitive antennas. The heart's sensitive antenna in the world touches us. We feel, you know, it, it, it's what allows us to feel the meaning of things or in things to experience a meadow is a property of mind to experience it, the meaning of the meadow itself or the meaning of a word. It's not just a intellectual definition thing. And then the brain is used, it's our, our organic computer is used for analysis and refinement. Feeling first, thinking after. Hmm. When that changes to thinking first, feeling if you get around to it or what was the second thing, it changes everything. That's rationalism. Rationalism is a religion that is blind by nature and it elevates the analytical capacities of the brain to a dominant position and which it can't, um, it can't really justifiably do that well because it, as soon as it begins to do that, it loses its capacities for the human attributes we need of compassion, of love, of caring, of empathy, uh, on and on and on. So that's the distinction. Yes, to reason, to think, to analyze, that we need to do. In a way, you could say that the old indigenous frame of reference, which was very much centered in the heart, as a perceptual frame that allowed them to move through the world and read the text of the world and engage directly with the meanings of the world itself in ways that rationalists are still miles and miles away from understanding. I mean, they have no real clue how sophisticated that was or is or can be. But by the same token, the indigenous world they did not tend to develop the analytical capacities of the brain very well because it wasn't important to them. It's not that they couldn't. Some um, cultures did do that. The Egyptians, as they moved out of it, or the Incas or whatever, and you can find it developed in various ways in some of the larger indigenous cultures, even some of the smaller ones. But it wasn't. they didn't worship it as we do. And in a sense, 
what we're needing now is a unification of the capacities of the heart, the heart as an organ of perception and thought. The, the heart has its own ability to reason and to think, joined with the analytical capacities of the brain to produce this sort of third way that is far more sophisticated than either of the two by themselves. But you have to be extremely careful in that process because it's not rationalism that is <laughs> is a good thing. Rationalism is not a good thing. It's a religion. And that's what makes it dangerous. And rationalism was... It was a movement that emerged, what, in like the 17th century or something? Yeah, ration, you know, it sort of came, it was a part of the Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. And the Enlightenment was designed to counteract the theocracy of the church. I mean, in a way, you know, Martin Luther's thing in the early 16th century was an attack on the oppression of the Catholics. And, you know, and that's why if when you really track it back, this whole concept, it came out of Protestantism. But you think about the, the world in which the Enlightenment arose, they had to, um, they had to develop it in such a way that they were affirming they still believed in the monotheistic vision of things. Otherwise, they'd all be killed. This was not, you know, a safe world where you go, you know, uh, you had to say, yes, God still exists. Yes, Jesus still exists. Yes, this. But, of course, God created the world like this huge clockwork. And we're all we're doing is figuring it out, out the mechanism. We still believe. That's why when you delve into science, you find that, the belief structure is identical to Christianity in this country. And in Islamic countries, it's identical to Islam, which are both come out of the same Orthodox Judaic tradition. And so this, what I'm talking about now, is a way of being that doesn't, that, that gets rid of the splinter, so to speak. They weren't able to get rid of the problem itself. Otherwise, they would have been killed. So they created a... Something a compromise. Could, yeah, they created this compromise position that could argue with it. They could offer options. And from that came our ideas of democracy and um, equality and liberal communities and all of the, and the rights of individuals, which didn't exist before. You know, but they were arguing it within that frame. What's happening now, and many of the theocratic evangelicals are quite aware of this, that we're talking about a return to a kind of a paganism. The environmental movement is very dangerous to them. Gaia theory is very dangerous because it's saying, you know, your perspective was incorrect, and it's just as challenging and dangerous and threatening to the whole scientific reductionist world. Because as, as time went on and the enlightened, see the enlightenment figures, they were really clear that there was way more going on here 
than reductive mechanicalism, and many of them argued against the strain of, uh, of science that believed that dissection of the world and this rationalist perspective were the way to go. They said, no, it's not. It's, it's completely dangerous. You can't do that. This was the whole romantic movement that occurred back then. They were arguing against it, but the group that I consider the most psychologically damaged of the Enlightenment movement managed to take over. Why? Because it's the simplest. You know, we take these chemicals out of the plants, we give them, use them this way, and look what happens. We immediately affect the world around us. We kill insects, therefore we can grow more crops. Well, yeah, for a little while, about three years. And then the insects develop resistance. So you do it again and then again, but now by then the soil is toxic. So, so out of this mechanistic viewpoint of like pure linear cause and effect, it ignores the enormous complexity of the world around it and uh, we just keep getting ever deeper in our problems. That's correct. And the more, the more complex our technology becomes, the more complex the side effects. Yeah. <laughs> so they're talking now about how well, we can put a solar shield around the earth or we can do this. Oh, or we can make, everything that they do causes unforeseen problems because they're not addressing the root cause, which is the approach is wrong. You can't control nature. That's an ecological limit that cannot be transgressed without serious problems. Nature cannot be controlled. Not by human beings, anyway. We can't even control our own cultures. We can't even control our own governments. We can't even control ourselves. Why would we think we can control nature that's, you know, four and a half billion years old and we've been around for, what, a million years if you stretch the definition of human a little bit? Homo sapiens been around, what, maybe a couple of hundred thousand years? I mean, these lines are very arbitrary. Our civilization has been around, what, 12,000 years? Science has been around for 500, 1,000, I don't know, some arbitrary figure. <laughs> you know, and we think that we can, and we have an average lifespan of 80 years old, and we think we can understand an organism 4.5 billion years old that has movement patterns that can only become apparent after 5,000 years or 5 million or 500 million? We don't even know what's going on here. We're no, that, that's the, the thing that most struck me when I first was introduced to Gaia Theory, because I grew up reading science fiction, and a common trope is aliens might be out there, but they could be so unrecognizable that we wouldn't even know they were intelligent. Right. And the big joke is, that's our own planet. Hey, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and that was the neat thing about Jane Goodall. She said, oh, when I started working with chimpanzees, they were saying, oh, they're not intelligent and they're this and they're that. And she goes, I knew that was rubbish. My dog taught me that when I was six. <laughs> yeah. My dog taught me that was rubbish when I was six. But yeah, you know what? She was different. She listened to her dog. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right, you're right. It was well, very well put. 
blowing my mind. Just tracing the intellectual kind of roots of where we're at, um, you know, there was a point where God is dead, but it seems that in the scientific paradigm right now, the thing we can't let go of is that human awareness is the only awareness. Right. And so that's the next obstacle that needs to be kind of dismantled. We're being taught in the worst way anyone can be taught to be humble. And it's going to be incredibly painful, as it always is with arrogance. The arrogant have to be brought low and humbled so badly that it will never, ever, ever escape anyone's perspective, perception again. Yeah. That arrogance like that is not safe. I mean, in the old days, they would have said, I mean, um, so many of the ancient Greek stories are about human arrogance. Like Arachne, I mean, I love that story where, <laughs> so there's this great weaver, you know, named Arachne. And so Arachne, she's the greatest weaver that has ever emerged amongst the human species. And so she's so arrogant and so sure of herself. And because she is a great weaver that she challenges the goddess to a contest. Which, of course, she loses horribly. And the goddess turns her into a spider, which is where arachnoids came from. I mean, these lessons in there over and over and over again is that it is not why there are powers here that it is not wise to blaspheme against. And we can translate that easily enough into the earth has been going on for four and a half billion years and there are movement patterns here. It is so much stronger than us that if we disturb it, we will not survive. We, it is not wise to blaspheme against something that much more powerful than ourselves. And that is what we're going to learn in the hardest way it can be learned. And nobody is going to stop what's happening. We can't. That's the whole lesson in Macbeth. Yes, he knew. what They told him what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen. But his character, the way he was wired up, he was unable to stop. We all know what needs to happen. But it's not going to happen. For all the reasons that everybody knows. Yeah, isn't that the definition of unilaterally Greek tragedy is you kind of know the ending right. at the beginning and right. fate decrees it. <laughs> right. We're just and headed down this the, path and we can't change it. Right, that's why it's a tragedy and not merely tragic. Yeah. So, and in a sense, in this time we're shifting from one paradigm to to another one. And when that happens, social structures crumble. That always happens. And so the way I look at it is, you know, just as the medical system begins to fail, well, it turns out that there's hundreds of thousands of herbalists that have been trained in plant medicines over the last 50 years. Because, you know, I've been predicting the emergence of something like COVID for 35 years now. And this is not the end. 
there's worse yet to come. Yeah. Because we've offended the microbial world, and they, and they, you know, they they don't believe really in forgiveness, and they don't forget either. <laughs> and so there's that. But then we look at we need to change. Look, the climate of mind inside us is creating the climate out there. And when our climate of mind needed to change, what began to show up? Hallucinogens. I mean, looking at them emerging in the late 50s the way that they did, that's a blink of an eye in geologic terms. Yeah. And they began to spread amongst the human community. And so then, you know, the the conservatives, you know, the Reagan Republicans, like, oh, no, that's really bad. Nixon, oh, the war on drugs. Oh, that's really horrible. So they suppress it really strong, you know. But... What happened? All of the marijuana growing just went in the basement, and the marijuana got 5,000 times stronger. <laughs> you can't suppress this stuff. It's like weeds growing through a sidewalk. No matter how much you suppress it, it's going to grow back because it's necessary. You can pave over the wildness of the world all you want. You can't stop it breaking through because control is not possible. The more it's suppressed, the more powerful its response. And now nothing can stop it. Marijuana is being legal everywhere. Why? Because there's money in it. I mean, who would have thought that the Republicans would have been our greatest, uh, the conservative Republicans would be our greatest allies in the fight to legalize drugs? <laughs> yeah. Because they go, well, yeah, but millions of dollars. They go, Ooh, you know, it's actually a good idea. I've, I've always felt that it was important. <laughs> so there we are and just as we need this alteration of habituated behavior patterns all of a sudden everybody's microdosing psilocybin you know they talk about that they're microdosing but I suspect microdosing accidentally becomes dosing for a lot of them <laughs> yeah you know all of a sudden ayahuasca shows up everywhere and, you know, and people, and it's being affirmed as a religious ceremony. I mean, America's weird. We don't have a spiritual category. We have religious categories, which I don't particularly agree with. But nevertheless, peyote, ayahuasca, they're all starting to be recognized as legitimate religious approaches. They can't stop it now. So all of these shifts, and all of these different ways are occurring, just as we're beginning to need them. The the demands for different kinds of farming. Uh, there's been a couple of generations now of people learning to farm in different ways, to raise animals in different ways, to work with the earth in different ways, to restore soil, to build housing that's more earth-friendly. You know, there's still only a tiny percentage, but the knowledge base has been restored which there was some question as to whether it could be or would be. So that's the beginnings of that paradigm breaking through everywhere. And in that, that it's like the green shoots that come every spring, the children that are born, the new life that comes. There's a faith in that. That's what hope is. Hope is a faith in life itself. It's not optimism. 
people in America confuse hope and optimism all the time. Optimism mm. is essentially false hope. Optimism is uh, the wish that things will turn out the way you want so you won't experience bad stuff. You know, you think, oh, I want to make a million dollars. That's uh, optimism. I'll do this. I'll make a million dollars and I'll be famous. Optimism. Hope is that you do this thing because it's right in and of itself to be done and you have faith in the life essence itself that is underneath it because all of us are going to die. I'm dying now myself. Mm -hmm. No matter, I mean, and I don't know why people get so weird about it. We hide it in this culture all the time, but I, I personally have never met a million-year-old person. I haven't even met a 200-year-old person. You know, and so most people don't, they've heard the rumor that they're going to die, but they don't really believe that everybody thinks it's going to be an exception is going to be made in their case, and that's because death in, is so hidden away. It wasn't to my grandparents and great-grandparents. People died in, at home, and they put the body in a casket in front of the fireplace, and they had a wake, and they carried them over to the cemetery and buried them. You know, they just saw the biodegrading process <laughs> as it occurred. We're all biodegrading. And, you know, you'd think as good liberals and everything, we would want to biodegrade, but we wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, as you put it, uh, we're rusting. We're what? Oxen. We're rusting? Rusting? Yeah. yeah. You had written that in Plant Intelligence in the Magical right. Realm, that right. oxygen is kind of Oxygen is us. a toxic poison. Yeah, such a. I mean, I only have a high school biology background, but they didn't teach me that. No, of course they didn't. <laughs> but I mean, it's inherent in it. But we have all the different kinds of immune dynamics that have developed to help us survive using oxygen to power ourselves. And the mitochondria in ourselves were once free living bacteria that were incorporated through symbiogenesis into this third, very unique life form that could use oxygen as a um, power source. And we shifted two and a half billion years ago, the Earth shifted to oxygen as a power source, and that was the greatest dying that the Earth had ever seen when that happened. Because all the organisms that did not use it died out. So, yeah, we're rusting. 